there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 79, Autocracy on Edge. Today I'm going to be taking an episode to go over the predecessor state that the Soviet Union would wind up replacing. When I had the idea for this episode, I was really afraid I'd be spinning my wheels, covering extra information on a topic that mm, isn't all that vital. After all, I'm contextualizing World War II here, not the Russian Revolution. But... The USSR was a state founded on grievance, and its scars went deep. And many of those scars were formed in the decades leading up to the revolution, when the future leaders of the Soviet Union cut their teeth vainly trying to turn the world upside down. I say vainly until, of course, they actually did the damn thing. So, in understanding the enemies of the communists, hopefully you'll understand them and their motivations a bit better. On paper, the Russian Empire was outwardly strong and only getting more so in the early 1900s. The economy was expanding and industrialization was coming along nicely. Foreign money was flowing in, helping accelerate that development. Russia's military might was also growing by leaps and bounds, with the expansion of the railway network meaning more of the empire's population could be mobilized in the event of war. The presence of the Zemsvos and communes meant that localities could manage their own affairs, providing a degree of governance that the central government was unable to provide, but still subordinate to the guiding will of the capital if push ever came to shove. Strictly speaking, the Russian Empire could be described as being in a more powerful position vis-a-vis -vis the other great powers than it had been in generations. But that wasn't really quite true, now was it? As discussed last episode, the reforms and modernization efforts of the late 1800s had done a great deal to change the empire, and they had also opened a Pandora's box that the regime would ultimately fail to deal with. The countryside was overburdened with an excess population that was going unaddressed, the cities had grown faster than most urban governments could manage, and conditions were totally squalid, and the intelligentsia bemoaned the backwardness of the autocracy and weren't quiet about it either. And I should probably just define what that is, the autocracy. I've been using the word a lot, and I'm going to be using it a lot more. Within the context of Imperial Russia, it was a form of monarchy wholly unbound from legal controls. In fact, all authority, legal or otherwise, flowed from the autocrat, who was always the czar. And since one man couldn't rule a state like Russia on his own, there were also the nobles. They themselves were individually powerful based on their station, but ultimately their national power derived from the autocrat. It just all flows down from the top through the person of the czar. It's all very impressive sounding on paper, but as we'll get into, the effectiveness of absolute power really depended on who wielded it. Though regardless of the effectiveness of the regime, many were still very interested in the status quo being preserved. Take one of the empire's oldest institutions, the church, as an example. The Eastern Orthodox Church was itself facing crisis conditions heading into the empire's closing days, which makes a degree of sense, given that they were totally in the autocracy's pocket, that they would share a similar fate. For centuries, the church had taken its lead from the czar, and there had never been anything close to a successful attempt at putting distance between church and state. This was great for the Tsars, as the church was truly the opiate of the masses that Marx and Lenin claimed it to be. The average Russian, meaning a peasant, lived a terribly isolated and backwards life, rarely traveling any great distance and being surrounded by endless countryside. It was a world of superstition, where paganism never quite died out, and the Christian god was mostly seen as the supreme spirit in a world full of them. 
Uh, what I'm saying is that theological understanding among Russians was pitifully poor, uh, but that was good because the church just had to impress on everyone that they controlled who went to heaven and who went to hell, and most people fell into line. The growth of the cities put a kink into that playbook, though. The church, much like the state, did not have a plan on how to manage the exploding urban proletariat. Those guys were much more likely to be literate, and therefore paid closer attention to actual scripture and actively engaged with the material. The church found itself without the resources to attend to these crowds, and by resources I mostly mean trained staff. The quality of the immediate priests on the ground out in the provinces was frankly embarrassing. The lowest and most numerous of the clergy were very likely to be drunks who could barely read and didn't understand their own religion any better than the peasants they attended to. I mean, part of the reason why the peasants knew so little of actual Christianity was because their local priests just sucked. As literacy rates increased in both the city and countryside, the church's standing correspondingly decreased. Increasingly, the people would be far less concerned with heaven and hell and more with their own material circumstances on earth. Not to say that they abandoned faith entirely, far from it, and that's actually going to be a sticking point for the communists, but the church didn't command the same prestige that it might have in earlier days, or even have a staff capable of trying to push a counter-narrative to the increasingly disgruntled proletariat. A counter-narrative of shut up and move along was formulated, though, via the Tsar's secret police, the Akrana. I talked about them briefly last week, but you should probably get better acquainted with them, especially seeing as how their lessons of secret policing would be taken to heart by the Bolsheviks. These guys focused on political criminals, which is to say anyone wanting to tear down the regime. Nations have had such internal police forces before, but the Akrana had the added benefit of acting under an autocracy. There were no rules. People could be detained on a whim, mail could be intercepted, and entrapment was a favorite tactic of the group. They also kept bureau offices open abroad, which was a departure from even the most brazen special police forces elsewhere, and while their agents outside Russia couldn't act with the same impunity, it did mean that even exiles from the empire were monitored. Their most effective tactic, though, was infiltration. A uh, little spoiler, next week I'm going to cover the political opposition to the autocracy, and oh boy, did the Akrana have everybody compromised. But much like the imperial government as a whole, the Akrana relied on the idea of unchecked power rather than the reality of it. Their budgets and staff were also never huge, and they usually had to utilize local police forces to aid in their efforts, as their numbers just weren't large enough to track down every political criminal in the empire. The favored method of punishment was internal exile, which usually meant Siberia or European Russia's northern reaches. There weren't jails in those places, the exiles simply found lodgings using a stipend provided by the state and settled in for the long haul or they plotted an escape, which we'll discuss in more detail in the future. It was a light-touch method caused by a lack of resources, something that their communist successors were going to have way fewer problems with. The state itself suffered constant budget problems as the dispersed population centers and rampant corruption made tax collection difficult, as I discussed last week. The government ministries were run by court favorites, not professionals. Their staff were composed of underpaid, overworked clerks. Both the leadership and the staff of those ministries were prone to corruption, whether petty stuff like taking bribes and skimming off the top of budgets, or full-blown embezzlement schemes. So, having interested and engaged local administrations like the Zemsvos was wholly necessary, as the national-level government was incapable of doing anything outside the bare minimum. 
which actually turned out to be a source of increased tension. As local groups grew more confident in their abilities, the autocracy looked on with increased worry. The Zemsvos and communes had their uses, but the prospect of them becoming independent-minded was unacceptable. There were no checks to the Tsar's power, no constitution-setting limits, and ergo, there were no checks to the state's power. They didn't need provincials and peasants getting any funny ideas. Now, a big issue for the government, though, was that there just weren't that many capable people in positions of power to solve the problems that I introduced last week. Oh, there were those who could put their foot down and reassert autocratic privilege, just not many that could actually fix the problems that had forced that reassertion in the first place. Nicholas II, czar and living apex of the autocracy at the time of the revolutions, was of no help in that regard. The most charitable characterizations of him conjure the image of a ruler who is wholly out of his depth, which, to be fair, was true. As czar, he was an active force in government, but tended to focus on minutia and small details, which in such a colossal enterprise like the Russian Empire was a complete waste of time, as there were always going to be small matters here and there that needed attention, and that's what minor functionaries were for. What the nation desperately needed was a forceful personality that could look at the big-picture problems and at least try to make sweeping decisions to get them fixed. Nicholas, though, was far too skittish for that. Nicholas's father and predecessor, Alexander III, had fit that bill much better. If he had been born in the American Midwest, he would be described as corn-fed. He was a tall, burly, and intimidating figure. Like Nicholas, he was also committed to the autocracy, but unlike his son, relished in the grand, sweeping powers available to him. As a father, he had left an impression on his son, who aspired to emulate his dad, but could never quite pull it off. Where Alexander was brusque, Nicholas was gracious, and where Alexander was forward with his ministers, Nicholas could barely engage them on matters of state. Alexander had noticed this and many more negative qualities in Nicholas early on, and had a low opinion of his heir. When Sergei Vitya, the minister of finance and Alexander's economic mastermind, suggested that Nicholas engage with a committee to get some government experience under his belt, Alexander responded by asking rhetorically, if Vitya had ever talked to his son about official matters. In Alexander's assessment, it would be a waste of time as Nicholas was, simply put, an idiot. And while Alexander would never win any Dad of the Year awards, the historical record does back him up. In an effort to toughen his shy and deferential son up a little, Alexander commissioned him in the army, which, good news, Nicholas took to very well, and in fact enjoyed his time in his regiment so much that he would consider it the most fun he'd have in his life. So much so that he never allowed himself a promotion past his regimental rank of colonel. Among his few talents were that he was good at horseback riding and socializing, and that's what he'd mostly do in the army. But things still didn't turn out like Alexander wanted. Firstly, the officers in Nicholas's unit became his friends, which was bad, because he was supposed to be their lord and master, not their damn drinking buddy. Part of the problem, too, was that Nicholas just wasn't a very mature man. Which, yes, practical jokes, drinking, and hanging around with the boys sounds a lot more fun than being a self-serious heir to the throne, but a lot was riding on Nicholas, and the lives of millions would hang in the balance. At the end of the day, he was just never able to quite pull his shit together. It didn't help that his honored but never satisfied dad passed away way too soon at the age of 49. 
Given his distaste for statecraft, Nicholas had probably been hoping against hope that Alexander would live to be ancient, and all the realm's problems would have blown over by the time he took the throne. If that was the case, then the gamble blew up in his face. Uh, that isn't to say that he was wholly incapable of being a functioning human being. I'd venture to guess most of us would also be overwhelmed by the prospect of being at the center of such a large, unwieldy, and problem-ridden machine. And Nicholas had things he was good at, just they weren't things that the Empire demanded of him during the time of his reign. His etiquette was excellent, and at social functions both within Russia and during international meetings, he was well-regarded. He projected an image of a present and caring ruler to his people, which was going to be handy as hell for a while, because one of the few things working in his favor was that much of the population thought that their ills were the cause of nefarious ministers that surrounded the Tsar and kept word of their miserable conditions away from his ears. If only we could get the Tsar's attention, he would fix everything, the people would say. That sentiment wore off by the end, but it took a lot of bodies in the streets and multiple lost wars to get to that point. If Nicholas had operated in a constitutional monarchy where he was a figurehead, or if he was just a better judge of character and knew how to delegate within the existing regime, he would have fit as ruler much better. He was the image of a monarch, dashing, courteous. He always cut a fine picture while riding on a horse. A fine picture of an emperor, though, wasn't enough to run the government. I've already described the numerous problems facing the state at Nicholas's ascension, and I'm sorry to report that not only was he incapable of managing the flawed bureaucracy, his own positive talents somehow made everything much worse. Nicholas might have been an unassertive manager, but he did have a way of playing people off against each other, and that's exactly what he did in the royal court and the government. Both were filled with bickering nobles, and Nicholas ensured that no one princeling gained too much power and influence to be able to resist his will, such as it was. Ministry assignments were fluid and prone to change when the incumbent nobleman fell out of favor, which then incited a rush over new appointments, which left hurt feelings, which led to new turf wars that Nicholas was sure to exploit. In the name of ensuring the body of the autocracy remained wholly dependent on him, he rendered it more unresponsive and less capable than ever before, which, given he was going to be facing revolution scarcely a decade into his reign, uh, it was just extremely bad timing to be messing with your own regime. His popularity was not helped by his wife, the Empress Alexandra, which was a real shame because in the long history of royal couples lacking affection for each other, this was not one of them. They genuinely loved each other, and the resulting five kids of their union enjoyed caring and mindful parents. Unlike so many other royal sob stories, the last batch of the Romanovs were a happy family. Except that while Alexandra loved Nicholas and their family, she didn't love Russia. Alexandra came from German nobility, specifically the region of Hesse in the northwest of that country. Despite that land being absorbed into the German Empire, their rank and status remained, enhanced as well by her family being part of that gigantic network of European royalty, all related via Britain's Queen Victoria. Victoria's offspring married into many of the great houses of Europe until the rulers of Britain, Germany, Russia, and other smaller branches traced themselves back to Grandma Vicky which was also one of the reasons why George V of Britain and Nicholas II looked identical to the point where they were mistaken for each other at family events. 
and even Kaiser Wilhelm II looked remarkably similar to those two after he grew a beard in his exile years. Anyway, Alexandra had the pedigree, and yes, this also meant she was related to Nicholas already, but this was a new age of pan-European nobles marrying their cousins. She didn't have a connection to Russia, though. Her upbringing was in Germany and Great Britain, her time in the latter country spent in the doting company of her grandma Vicky. Russian customs were unfamiliar to her, and she did not take to them once she arrived and got set up in the empire. The lifestyle of the Russian nobility was ostentatious as all hell, with dazzling galas and sumptuous feasts being the normal domain of the Tsarina. Alexander, however, did not care for this social aspect of the monarchy, especially since the aggressiveness of the Russian nobility grated on her. Gossip, rumors, and social conniving might be normal all over the world, but it took on new dimensions in Russia. What Alexandra would have been used to could have been considered fun and games, whereas the Russian version of those activities were closer to a full-contact sport. She disliked the drama and secluded herself from it. The nobility didn't take the snub lightly. The royal family were masters of the nation, and the nobility were their willing servants. But part of the reward in being noble was that you got to be close to that power. A withdrawn Tsarina didn't do at all, and her dismissiveness towards custom, while simultaneously embracing the imperious attitude of an absolutist, only made it worse. And in an age of pan-Slavism, more on that in a bit, the Russian leadership didn't take too kindly to being dismissed by a German princess. What really set Alexandra over the edge was the genuinely tragic illness of her only son and youngest child, Alexei. This is the part of the story you've probably heard before. The kid had hemophilia, a condition where his blood didn't clot, which meant that the slightest bruise could be a death sentence. This disease was doubly tragic because Alexandra knew that Alexei's plight came from her bloodline. Yes, I know history and popular culture have traditionally had a huge blame-the-woman problem, but it really was her. While she didn't suffer from the disease herself, numerous male relatives did, and it actually killed one of her brothers and an uncle. This caused no small measure of guilt on her part, and given that she was a deeply devout woman, she turned to faith to try and protect her son. Which, to be fair, medicine had come a long way in those days, but was almost completely unable to address hemophilia, so it wasn't like she was foregoing viable treatment in favor of New Age crystals here. Originally, she had been a Lutheran Christian, which caused a small snag when Nicholas was courting her, as she didn't want to convert to Eastern Orthodox, but for the marriage to go through, she had to. Alexander relented and made the switch. It turned out that she took a liking to the Eastern branch of the faith, especially all the seemingly mystic rituals and exotic chanting during church services. Uh, the fact that she was kind of a center of attention during the services probably enhanced the experience. And as I mentioned earlier, the church in Russia was in kind of a rough shape, which meant that there was an increase in holy men and mystics wandering the country offering spiritual services, both of the Orthodox faith and outside the mainstream of church practices. She would engage these types of guys to help Alexei, and while their efforts were fruitless, she didn't lose faith. And no, I'm not getting to Rasputin this episode. He shows up in about two to three weeks. Nicholas, for his part, did not attempt to control his wife and force her into social engagements she didn't want to, and gave her complete leeway in getting any kind of help for Alexei. Which, hey, props for being a supportive husband. Nicholas himself had a mystic side to him, which unfortunately brings me back around to him and his failings, including one trait which I think really enhances his lack of capability. 
because I think simply calling Nicholas a pleasant idiot falls short of the mark. Because stupidity could be worked with, and even in the conditions of Tsarist Russia in the early 1900s, might not have been totally fatal. Nicholas, though, wasn't just an idiot. He was delusional, too, and that's something I don't think people really appreciate as much. Nicholas wasn't satisfied with being the supreme autocrat, because that implied he was merely the man at the top of a pyramid. The Tsar instead thought of himself as God's chosen ruler on earth, closer akin to an agent of the Holy Spirit than the central cog in a very big machine. There had always been kind of a duality to the Russian Tsars going back to Peter the Great. Originally, the Grand Dukes of Muscovy ruled, like most medieval and early modern rulers, as divinely appointed figures. This stretches back to Russia's Eastern Orthodox background, which carried with it heavy influences from the old Eastern Roman, or Byzantine, Empire. That particular empire had used its ancient roots to lay claim to universal authority on Earth, with this claim solidified by its leadership within the Orthodox Church. In a nutshell, those emperors traced their roots back to both ancient Rome and the formation of the organized Christian Church, with authority over both institutions. Secular and theological power were not just intertwined, they were, for practical purposes, one and the same. And this was transmitted to Muscovy after the fall of the old empire, in the form of the last Greek emperor's niece being sent out east to marry the Grand Duke. The transmission of that secular and theological power was thus never severed, simply transferred to a new home. At least if you follow the Russian line on that. Uh, hence also why Moscow is referred to as the Third Rome by people wanting to either show off in a stupid way or be ironic. And rulers in Moscow embraced those Byzantine notions of ruler ensconced in temporal and divine authority. Also, why the Tsars would use a double-headed eagle in their heraldry, as each head of the eagle represented one of those types. And so it went on, the rulers of Muscovy and later Russia, using notions of the divine as a basis of their rule. Until Peter. Peter I, a.k.a. the Great, was, to put it mildly, a reformer. And while he wasn't averse to using mystical trappings to enhance his image, he was more interested in more worldly forms of power. I'm not going to get into all the details, but in modernizing Russia in the early 1700s, he also modernized the monarchy. He didn't do away with the divine claims, as those could be handy, but he laid the groundwork of the much more impersonal autocracy. He and his successors ruled not just because of God's grace, but because they themselves were individually powerful. As a result, it really came down to the individual czar on how to play up which aspect. And just to bring this little tangent back around to the topic at hand, Nicholas II really wanted to play up the divine aspect, which might not have been the most in-touch decision in the first two decades of the 1900s. Nicholas reveled in the pageantry of being czar. The elaborate court displays were meant to convey an image of not just power, but God's favor. And Nicholas totally bought into his own propaganda. His coronation is a good example of this. It was held in Moscow, the traditionalist and mystical counterpart to the deliberately modern capital of St. Petersburg, and between the two, easily Nicholas's preferred city. The pomp and circumstance of the event, which was held in May 1896, was bigger and grander than any coronation Russia had ever seen. While being crowned, doves were released, and Nicholas was overwhelmed with the imagery. He was convinced in that moment he was God's living agent, and the autocracy was merely his tool. What should have been a humbling lesson in divine favor came four days later, 
as part of the continuing festivities, there was a public feast, which meant that vast food stalls were set up and everybody in Moscow who could make it was invited to a free meal and some drinks. A rumor spread in the crowd that the food was running out and there was a stampede of those desperate to get those precious calories. Almost 1,400 people died and a similar number were gravely injured. The coronation festivities, though, were not interrupted and Nicholas was spotted at a ball that evening. The public was outraged and it was only after days delay that he issued a message of condolence, which basically just said it was a real shame what happened and he was sorry to hear about it. Uh, that was Nicholas in a nutshell. In his own head, he was a grand and attentive ruler, but in reality, he was far separated from the true conditions that his people lived in. Being stupid was one thing. Living in a make-believe fantasy land of divine favor, that was dangerous as all hell, and he was going to lose his empire and his life for it. That delusion of a vague, holy mission would spill over into government policy as well. Since the late 1800s, Russian nationalism had been growing. At the time, the popular talking point was pan-Slavism, that is, a uniting of all Slavic peoples under one banner. And I don't just mean a club of nations either, I mean all Slavs living under the Slavic Tsar in Russia, which, despite the pan part of the name, was a very Russian thing, as it assumed that all the Slavs of Europe would be reporting to the Russian-dominated state. This would include the western branches like the Poles and Czechs, of which many lived in Germany and Austria-Hungary, as well as the South Slavs, which would mean having to take over the entire Balkans up to Italy. It was wholly unrealistic as a goal, but many in the regime entertained such fanciful notions, including Nicholas II. This goal would entail the destruction of Austria-Hungary and the crippling of Germany, as they would never agree to such an expansion without a cataclysmic fight beforehand which was all fine and dandy with Nicholas, as he had a ready friend in France to do just that. Uh, that was all very long-term, though, set for after the Russian Empire had sorted itself out. But wouldn't you know it, the Empire just couldn't sort itself out. The Tsar, as I mentioned, was ineffectual with his ministers and incapable of addressing the big issues. And since such large issues like chronic corruption and arrest of underclass escaped his understanding, he was simply uninterested in them which might have been okay had he any ministers worth their salt. Unfortunately, before 1905, he had exactly one on hand, Sergei Vitya. Vitya had managed to work miracles economically, but his minister of finance had only so much power and was unable to address the issues that arose because of those economic miracles. He also had created for himself a number of enemies who felt that he was stepping onto their turf in his efforts to modernize the nation's economy. And as touchy as any of the nobles that have come up before on this podcast have been, none of them were as touchy and averse to being ordered as the Russians were. He was removed in August 1903. The story of his firing is another telling knock on Nicholas. Vitya, by that time, was kind of seeing the writing on the wall and figured he was going to be dismissed. When he met with the Tsar, he assumed that he was going to be fired, but instead Nicholas embraced him warmly and the two socialized before Vitya took his leave and the Tsar assured his minister that he had his back. Vitya returned to his office afterwards and found a letter of dismissal already waiting on his desk. Nicky couldn't even fire him face to face. And despite Vitya doing so much to help the economy, he did make a very big long-term miscalculation that created a direct line to 1917. In the mid-1890s, Vitya had been given the additional responsibility of overseeing Russia's interests in the Far East. 
This was a sensible task for the finance minister as A, he was competent, and B, Russia's expansion in the Far East had just as much an economic and infrastructure importance as a military one. The Trans-Siberian Railway was under construction, with its terminus point being the port of Vladivostok. The connection would not just open up the Russian Far East to more effective exploitation, but northern China as well. If you recall our Japanese episodes, you might see where I'm going with this. If contained to Russian territory, then the railroad would have to make a long arc adjacent to the Chinese border to reach the port. The idea was to create a shortcut through northern Manchuria, which we know is exactly what happened. This meant that Manchuria was of vital interest to Russia. Then the Sino-Japanese War of 1894-95 happened, and suddenly Japan was an imperial power on the Asian mainland too. Vitya did not expect this and rallied France and Germany to force Japan to return many of their gains and place Korea under Russian protection. Remember episode 54 and how the entire Japanese nation was publicly humiliated by the Europeans and how their leadership immediately set to work building a force big enough to challenge Russia? Well, Vitya didn't realize it at the time, and nobody else did, but his policies to secure Manchuria had created an enemy Russia was in no way prepared to deal with. And that's going to be the topic of the episode coming in two weeks' time, Russia's experience during and after the Russo-Japanese War. Don't worry, I remembered that we covered the actual war part of it during the Japanese miniseries, and I don't intend to cover the same ground again. What I do intend to do, though, is cover how the war critically undermined the regime and exposed all its fault lines, and then when defeat was actually admitted, open the door to the first of two major revolutions that would see off the Romanov dynasty and imperial rule in Russia. But first, we need to do a little counterpoint episode to this one. Now that I've covered some of the key parts of the autocracy, it's time to cover the opposition. Which, hey, wasn't just a pack of Bolsheviks, as it did take a lot of political groups to bring the empire down. But since this is all building to the USSR, it'll mostly be a pack of Bolsheviks. I'll see you then, and as always, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.